Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are back with a new short series from James Jordan, and here he's going to be talking about the New Covenant, and here he'll be dealing with changes over time in covenant theology. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoyed this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing transformation in time with New Covenants. When we talk about covenant theology, there's about five or six different kinds of that. Okay, There's one kind of covenant theology that says, because man sinned, God had to do something about the sin of man. And so the Father and the Son cut a deal in eternity, and then they extended that deal to human beings in the covenant of grace. And before that, there was a covenant of works uh, with Adam, and the covenant of works was either that Adam was supposed to stay good and eventually God would transform him uh, into some kind of a reward, which is what the Westminster Confession says, to abide in righteousness, or else that Adam was supposed to do a bunch of good works and earn brownie points and earn some kind of extra blessing, which is not actually what the confession says, but what a lot of theologians have come to believe. That's one kind of covenant theology, kind of a contract, a series of contracts. Another kind is developed in the Netherlands, and that is the covenant means the uh, mutual lifestyle that we have with each other in the kingdom. We have covenantal relationships with each other. And that's because the three persons of God have covenantal relationships with them. That's the word we use to describe their inner relationships. And so you have a marriage covenant. And if we were to draw a picture here of you, okay, you have a relationship with your wife, and we'll draw a red color there. And then you have relationships with your kids, and we'll have blue strings leading to those kids. Then, I didn't open up my packages, but you have covenantal relationships with your boss, okay? And we could have a green string to that. And you have relationships with the three persons of God, and we would have a white light string to that because it's that's a total relationship. We have all these relationships with people. We're attached to people. And when those relationships are broken, we feel pain because they're part of us. So when your wife dies, you feel pain. Why do you? Just so it wasn't you, it wasn't you that was hurt. Why do you feel pain when your wife dies, when your child dies, when your child apostatizes? Why do you feel pain when a good friend betrays you? Why do you feel pain when you're like Job and everything is going wrong and you turn around and you say, at least I have you, Lord, and then he doesn't seem to be there either? Why do you feel pain? Because of all these strings, okay? It's like a rubber band that snaps and hits you when that's cut. Well, that's the kind of thing that that Dutch theologians began to use the word covenant to describe. All those relationships. And we have one set of relationships in the beginning, and then we have new sets of relationships that develop in time. And 
theologians would say, looking at the way the Bible uses the word covenant for marriages and for relationships with God and relationships in society, we can build on that to talk about a theology of covenant. We do that by what we call analogy and eminence. We draw analogies to other kinds of situations that the Bible doesn't talk about. And then we rise up from the data to larger concepts, even to the idea that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have a covenantal relationship with themselves. And that a covenant, we could say, has three elements. It involves particular persons who are in a structured relationship with each other, and it involves a a relationship or a bond. We just say around here, personal structural bond. That the structure is related to the second person of the Trinity in whom all things hold together. The bond or connection is made by the Holy Spirit, the matchmaker who ties everything together. uh, And the persons are more related to the Father. So a marriage is a personal and structural bond. The structure is that the husband is the boss and the wife is the slave. Right? That's the structure. Not really. The husband is the the inglorious beginning beginner of things, and the wife is the glorified completer of things. Uh, Men begin things, women glorify things. Oh, there's lots of different ways to say, but they're not the same. Okay? They're relationships of mutuality, where we one another, one another, and we do that because we're different from one another. Okay? You don't need to one another with me if I've already got everything you've got. If you have everything I have, I don't need to have a relationship with, with, with you. But if you're different from me, we can one another one another. Okay? And so those differences make for these relationships, these covenants. Now that's the way we prefer to talk about covenant and society. Uh, and we think that's that's much better way to approach the matter uh, rather than think merely of contracts that arose because of the sin of man. Now the question is, if God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they have these relationships among themselves. Three persons are different. They're mutual with each other. Each one of them is constantly stepping back to glorify the other two. Each member of the Trinity delights to humble himself for the glory of the other two. Humility is an attribute of God. Okay? Let each esteem the other better than himself. Paul says that's how we're supposed to live, right? And that's because that's the way the three persons of God do. Jesus says, hey, don't worry about me. I only do what the Father says. And besides, I'm leaving. And if you want to be excited about somebody, be excited about the Spirit. Hey, the Spirit's coming. But when the Spirit comes, he calls all the attention to Jesus. And when Jesus says, hey... My father is the one who's really important. The father says, this is my son, listen to him. Each one steps back to glorify the other two. That's the way they are. So that's the way we're supposed to be. Because we're images of God. We tend to say God does everything for his own glory. But really, the three persons of God never do things for their own glory. They want to glorify the other two. So that's going on. Well now... We can only think about the three persons of God as existing in time like we do. And so everything that we say in theology about the three persons of God has to have this caveat that 
it's not quite the same for them as it is for us. But if I step back to give glory to uh, Peter Lightheart when he speaks and say, Peter is really the expert on Matthew here, listen to him. And then he steps back and says, Jim is really the expert on everything, listen to him. <laughs> uh, as we do this with each other, uh, that's there are minutes that go by in between. Okay, That minutes don't go by in God. But one of the things that happens is, day by day, as I glorify somebody else, they get more glorious. If I buy something nice for my wife, she looks more glorious than she did the day before. And if she does something nice for me, I'm more glorious than I was before. So the three persons of God are always, in some sense, glorifying each other, and yet they already have all glory. If you already have all glory, how can you get more glory? I don't know. We call that the full bucket difficulty. If the bucket's already full, how can you add to it? If God is all glorious, how can he be glorified? And yet there's some sense in which the three persons of the Trinity are always glorifying each other. Am I on the page here? Okay. Um, We have people who studied this more than I have. Uh, So I'll make sure. Um, we, we, can't, we can't understand that except that you and I are going to live forever and ever and ever and we'll always be becoming more and more glorious because other people will glorify us and we'll always have new opportunities to step back and be humble and give glory to somebody else and it's going to increase forever now that business of increasing It's what I want to talk about because that's what makes it possible for there to be a new covenant. God doesn't make a covenant or a creation and have it stay there. That can't be true because the three persons of God are eternally active and in a sense building the glory among themselves in some sense that we can't understand. And that's expressed in time and we see it in Genesis 1. Think about the first chapter of Genesis which is in the... This, this is the Bible. All right, you all know the passage, so we don't have to spend a lot of time reading it, but what's interesting about it is, it says, God saw the light was good, God separated the light from darkness, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And then it says, there was evening and morning one day. Why? Why wasn't there just a day, and then another day, and then another day? Why do we have to get dark in between each one? Why not just have day and then day? We know that they were 24 hours long, right? Right. So we have day and then day and then day without any of this darkness in between. You ever thought about that? How many of you never thought about that? Good. You've all thought about it. Well, why? Why is there dark between each day? Why do you have to have that? Why did God do that? Why did it start out dark and then God makes light? Why not have it be light in the beginning and just stay light? Why is there evening between each new day? That has to be important. Now this is the Achilles heel of all the alternatives to six-day creation. If you read the alternatives, 
And, you know, I, I think very highly of the individual men who hold other views as Christians. But the one thing the, these other views can't deal with is the evening-morning thing, or not very well. They would have to say, you, you really can't have it both ways. You have to say, this entire chapter is a poem. And fine, it's a poem. But if you try to make it a little bit on the realistic side, what do you do with the evenings and mornings? Okay, It doesn't work for ages of time. It doesn't work for frameworks. Well, these evenings, well, that's not our interest here. Our interest is why. Why did God do that? Well, I don't have an answer to that question, except that I think that somewhere it relates to this business of the humility of God. That that is an expression of the way in which the Son steps back to glorify the Father and the Spirit, and the way the Father steps back to glorify, somehow or other, that is is underlying the fact that there has to be an evening between, between each day. Now, the next thing I want to call your attention to is that each day is better than the one before. It says in chapter 1, verse 4, God saw the light was good. God called the light day. If the light is good, is the day good? The answer is yes. Okay? Okay? Light, day, is good. Light is day. No, light is good. Day is light. Therefore, day is good. Darkness is, well, it's not quite good. Okay? Then... It says, on the third day, God called the dry land earth, and God saw that in the gathering of waters he called seas, and God saw it was good. What was good? It. The situation was good. And then in the afternoon, God makes the fruit trees and the grain plants. No, he did not make Brussels sprouts. There's nothing about them here. Just fruit trees and grain plants. The enemy had done the rest. Not really, but we're not told. What we're pointed to are fruits and grains here. And it was so, and God saw that it was good. It, the situation, was good. Now we can continue on. The point I'm making is the only thing God calls good is light. The only thing that's called good is light. The situation is good. Now look at what it says. God called the light day, day is good. Each new day, God looks and says it's good. That means it's light. It's lighter than the day before. Each day has more goodness. Why? Because God comes around on the fourth day and he says, you know, yesterday everything was good, but there's something missing. I know. I'll break the firmament up into sun, moons, and stars. I'll distribute the light out to all these things. And now, that's good. Then the next day, it's, hmm, something's lacking. I know. Fish for the seas, birds for the land. And God sees that's good. Each day is gooder than the day before. Because day four was good for day four, but when you get to day five, you have the evening and morning. Now, well, yesterday was good, but this not continues to be good enough. We need something to be gooder, better. And the word good is associated with light. 
And we're going to, if you connect all this stuff up in the Bible, that's connected with glory. And where I'm going with this is each day is more glorious than the day before. Because each day is dayier than the day before. It's lighter, it's gooder. Because if it, if the fourth day was just as good as the third day, God wouldn't have needed to change anything. Now these, this glorification that comes on the next day comes after a time of darkness. God does not say, okay, 24 hours of light and day, and now huh, now it's time to change things and make it better. It doesn't look... These are all... It doesn't look like this. Day one, day two, day three, day four. Okay, it looks like this. Day one, dark. Day two, dark. Day three, dark. Day four. That's how it is. Each day is better, but in between, there's this time of darkness. Deep stuff, right? Well, each day is a new creation. Which means each day is a new covenant. Because there's new things to be covenanted with. There was no covenant connection among planets, moons, and stars, quarks, quasars, well, quarks, but quasars, and nebula, and galaxies, and local clusters, and all the rest. None of that existed on the third day. All those covenant relationships called gravity and other things came into existence on the fourth day. There was no birds mating with each other and fish leaving seeds, uh, 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 eggs for other fish to come by and do things with. None of that was going on on the fourth day. All those new relationships came into existence on the fifth day. There's a new, new covenantal stuff happens on each new day. Each new day is radically different from the day before. We're so used to this passage, we don't think about it. But each new day is radically different from the day before. Each new day involves all kinds of new covenantal relationships that weren't there on the day before. Each day is a new creation. Each day is more glorious than the day before. Each day is lighter than the day before. Each day the Spirit has done more than He did before. The Spirit's the one doing this. Okay? The Spirit was in the creation from the beginning. God didn't make the world and send the Spirit into it. He made the world and the Spirit came along with it. Okay, He was there, and He's the one working this, glorifying this world step by step. This one covenant creation that was made in the beginning then is transformed in time through death and resurrection events. Dark and then more light. Dark and then more light. Is, is this making sense? Not more light in the physical sense. I don't think the fifth day was any brighter to the eye than the fourth day. I'm not saying that. But there's more of what is good. And light is the only thing that's called good. So there's an implication that there's more of light, more of glory. And there's new covenantal things that are there. This is the way God does things. This is the way the Spirit does things. One day after another. Okay? Now I've got down here as a fifth point. Resurrection, in quotation marks, is never merely coming back to life. Resuscitation. 
It's always progress in development in time. That's important, and we're going to look at that more as we continue here. But real resurrection is never just coming back to life. Okay, we can say Lazarus was resurrected. We can say that the that uh, Elijah uh, resurrected the widow's son, but he wasn't glorified, and he died later on. That's not a real resurrection in the covenantal sense. The real resurrection—that's only a sign. That's a sign of real resurrection. When Israel dies in exile, when she's resurrected in the restoration, it's way more glorious than it was before. They only had a seven-lamp lampstand in the temple. But after the restoration from exile in the days of Cyrus, they had a 49-lamp stand, 49 lights on the lampstand. Solomon's temple had two big bronze pillars up beside the door. But after we come back from exile, the new temple has two bronze mountains next to the door. Solomon's temple had water chariots that ran from the temple door down to the altar. That's as far as they got. But after the exile, we have a river that starts out and it just flows all the way out to the Dead Sea and revivifies it. See, there's more. The resurrection is not just coming back. This was always the problem with the Jews in Jesus' day. They thought when the Messiah came, he would just put things back the way they'd been. They should have learned from the Old Testament the Messiah was never going to put things back the way they'd been. He was going to glorify what had been there. Well, now I'm getting ahead of myself, but I want us to... We have to kind of think about all this together again because we have to think about man. What are human beings made out of? What are you made out of? Dirt. You're a dirt ball, all of you. Bags of dirt, okay? You are all clods of dirt in the Holy Land if you've been baptized, okay? This is the Holy Land, the only Holy Land there is, okay? Man is made of world, and human beings go to sleep every day. And what is your cycle of sleep? Do you work for 24 hours and sleep 12? Why not? Are you awake for 40 hours and then sleep for 18? Why not? You're awake and sleep exactly the same way the world is. You're on the same clock as Genesis 1. You're made of world, and you're on the same cycle as the world. And you go to sleep. Now, what the Bible shows us is that the spirit who worked in this world day by day enters into the dirt and makes human beings. And we are now the vehicle of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit no longer looks at the world and changes it directly. He uses us to do it. We are the agent of transformation. We change the world. We lay hold on the world. We divide it. We reconstitute it. We make it into new things and we glorify it. Because we believe in the procession of the Holy Spirit, we believe that the world grows. We don't believe in an economics of zero sum. (laughs) We believe in progress in history because the Holy Spirit comes into human beings and enables them to make the world better. So you take a field that's just got a bunch of weeds in it, and human animals don't do this, okay? 
But human beings go in and they pull out the weeds and they plant crops and there's a whole lot more food coming out of that field than there was before. Human beings grow the world. Human beings transform the world. But how do human beings live? Okay? At the end of every day, you're tired. Why do you get tired? And then you go to sleep and you wake up and you have new energy, or at least you used to. Some of you, this is still true. But even somebody like me, if I can get out of bed and walk down the stairs one step at a time because my feet hurt too much to go down both feet at a time anymore, and then have a couple of cups of coffee, and then eventually I'm ready to, to go more. You know. But at night when I was ready to go to bed, man, I was dead tired. I just fall into bed, dead tired. And then you wake up and you got new energy. Why? How does that happen? Why don't you wake up just as tired as you were? You were not Gnostics. <laughs> this is the reality of the world in which we live. We're made of world, and this is how world is. And every day, we wake up resurrected with new energy. This is not just a symbol of something. It's reality. It is a symbol of something. Or symbols are all realities. And by the end of each day, people have changed their world based on the energy received as a result of sleeping the night before. So I, for instance, by the end of the day, may have written five or ten more pages. I have changed the world. Or maybe I've just spent the day opening envelopes or stuffing envelopes to send out to you people. Or whatever. Or maybe I've weeded the garden. Or maybe, I don't know, whatever you do. At the end of the day, you have made the world different. Why? Because you got up in the morning and you said, huh, this isn't good enough. And so you change it. And by the end of the day, you've at least done something to make it better. But then you're tired and you go to sleep and you wake up the next day and you say, this isn't good enough. And so you change it to make it better. This is exactly what God the Spirit did in the first week of creation. And it's what you do. You can't help but do it. Okay? So you ladies, you wake up in the morning and you look at the furniture and you say, oh, this needs to be rearranged. <laughs> and so it's got to be rearranged. Or you look at the food in the refrigerator and say, this is not good enough. It needs to be cooked and combined and made into something. Whatever it is you do, it wasn't good enough when you started fooling with it. Now you might actually make it worse. But the design, at least the goal, is to be like God and make it better than the, than the way it was. And you do that day by day with periods of sleep in between. You have evenings between the mornings. That's what you do. You experience death and resurrection every day. You get dead. While you're asleep, you don't know what's going on. You're dead to the world. You know, we use these expressions, I'm dead tired. Man, he's so sleepy. He's dead to the world. But the Bible speaks the same way. It talks about those who've fallen asleep. That means those who are dead. The Bible has that same continuum of sleep and death as we do in our language. It's natural for us to think this way because it's the way we exist. And that's how God dealt with Adam. Adam was going to keel over and go to sleep and wake up each day with new energy and change the world again and glorify it. But not only on the day-by-day -day things, but now you've all, half of you have heard this story before. We're going to go over it again. 
When God looks at the man after the man has named the animals, and he doesn't find any animal who can help him at his most fundamental task, which is what? Man's most fundamental task is to reproduce. And so he doesn't find any animal that he can marry, marry with and reproduce. No, that's not right. Man's fundamental task is to worship God, and there is no other animal that can be a helper to help him worship God in the garden sanctuary. And so God says, now he sees that it's not good for the man to be alone. It's not good for worship to take place by you alone. Your private devotions are fine, but they're not good enough. You have to join with somebody else in worship. There has to be a dialogue where you can both worship God together, and it's not good for the worshiper to be alone. And so I will make somebody who can be a worshiper along with him. And so the man finds out that there's no helper in the liturgy for him. And then God said, Adam, now that you understand... You are growing in knowledge and wisdom. Now stand still. This won't hurt a bit. And then while Adam washed, he built up the woman, rib into a woman. Is that what happened? No. He made him go to sleep. Not just sleep, but we've got a special Hebrew word here, tardema, which we can translate death sleep, or you can translate it deep sleep or coma. Your Bible translates it deep sleep. This is real deep sleep, because if you were just deep asleep and I ripped a rib out of you, I think you'd wake up. Adam was way down in deep sleep. And, you know, we've talked about this enough times, and I've written on it enough times, and if if this is a brand new idea to you, I'll show you where you can read more on it. But this deep sleep stuff is part of what God does. He didn't have to put him to sleep or... Maybe given who God is, he did have to do it this way. But he does. So what happens to Adam? He goes into Tardema, death sleep, the same place Jonah was in a whale, the same place Sisera was just before Jael took him out with a tent peg. Okay? The, the place that Jesus was in the tomb, in a sense, because Jesus says he's like Jonah. Okay. And while Adam is in this state, God rips him in half. Now think about all the places in the Bible where tearing things in half is associated with death. Okay, And then God brings him back to life again and he's glorified. How do we know that Adam was glorified? Come on, ladies. The woman is the what? The glory of the man. I better not ever have to ask this question again. To silence. Just kidding. Okay, death and glorification. He does not come back the same way he was before. He says, now we're one flesh. Okay? But it's glorified flesh. This is this this kind of death and resurrection and glorification things got nothing to do with sin. It's the way God does things before sin comes into existence. God uses this template to deal with sin. But it didn't come into existence because of sin. Now we have the next stage of glorification of Adam, which we don't come to right away, at least not in a full sense. Let's go over that. What else did God say? He says to the man... From every tree you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat from it you will surely die. 
Now, is that a threat or is that just a simple statement of fact? We always assume it's a threat. I'm going to suggest to you that it's not a threat. It's just a statement. This is what's going to happen. Now, I'll remind you that after Eve was made, God said to both of them together in Genesis 1, Behold, I have given y'all every plant-yielding seed and every tree that has fruit-yielding seed. It shall be food for you. So Eve heard God say, every tree. So how did she find out she wasn't supposed to eat of the tree of knowledge? Adam told her, right? Okay. The man's supposed to speak. Let the woman keep silent in the garden. The man must speak. Paul says, as the scripture says, well, this is where scripture says it. Okay. She has to learn this from her priest. Okay, When it comes to these two sacramental trees, the tree of life is okay, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God says we can't eat from it uh, lest we die. Well, what about this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, we're told, out of the ground Yahweh God caused to grow every tree that's pleasing to the sight and good for food. Was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil pleasant to the sight? Was it a pretty tree? Yes. Was it good for food? Uh-huh. It's good for food, but they were never going to eat it? I don't think so. It's good for food. And God says, every tree shall be food for you. And he says, in the day you eat of this one, you will die. Well, what does Adam know about death? Well, he's just already had a taste. <laughs> death means you go to sleep, you wake up, and there's this cute babe. Hey, bring on the death. <laughs> well, maybe not, but at least we have some idea that death doesn't have to be connected with sin. Something like death doesn't have to be connected to sin. All right? What is involved with this? Well, okay. The question that's going to come up now is questions people ask me. Well, don't you think... That if Adam had remained faithful, God would have repealed the death sentence off of this and said, okay, now y'all can eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you won't have to die. My reply to that is, I have no reason to think that since death is a positive thing in what we've seen so far. And secondly, in the rest of the Bible, that's how it happens. And I think that's how it happened with Jesus. I'll just go ahead and say this now, but I think that Jesus experiences two deaths on the cross. For three hours, he's separated from God and pays for our sins. Then he gives up his spirit at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and is resurrected to rule. I think that second death is the death that was sp spoken of here. Shoot me if you want. But I, you know, we're, we're here to discuss things, not to have the last words. You know, it's the nice thing about being a post mill is that you know that 20,000 years from now, people will know more than we do. So we don't have to have it all settled here. All we have to do is try to advance the discussion. So I'm going to be suggesting that, okay? I don't think that the death business would have been repealed, but it would have been, you know, more kind of like going to sleep and waking up with some new kind of glorification. What's involved in it? Well, what's involved in it is entrance into the wider world. We're made, Adam is made, he's put into the garden, that's where they live, and there they're going to live for a while until they learn some wisdom, and then when they have wisdom, they can go into the wider world. Why? The reason is there are no 
donut trees in the garden. There are pear trees, there are plum trees, there's all kinds of good stuff, but you know, at the end of the day, what you need is a donut. Not just an ordinary donut, but one of those donuts that's got the white cream inside and the chocolate on top. Donuts. But you see, to make a donut, you have to have wisdom. You have to go out into the field where you've got not the fruit trees. The fruit trees are in the garden, but out in the field are the grain plants. Remember on the third day God made the fruit trees and the grain plants. The grain plants are out there. You have to go out there and you have to cut down the grain plants. You have to know when to do that. Aha, that takes wisdom, timing, knowing when. Then it also involves winnowing the thing. You've got to learn how to do that. It's not too hard to learn. Then you've got to learn how to pound it. Then you've got to learn what to add to it like sugar, and then you have to learn how to make the dough, and you have to learn how to get olive oil from the trees, so you got to take some tree stuff, oil, and get it real hot and dip those things in there, and the real secret, of course, of a donut is to put that hole in the middle of it. And then you got to have some liquid sugar that you got from sugar cane or sugar beets and pour over it. <laughs> and then you've got a donut. <laughs> this takes wisdom, you see. You don't start off knowing how to do that. Adam and Eve are babies. They're kind of adult babies, but they don't know how to do that. They have to learn wisdom. That's, nobody's going to, no angel's not going to come down and teach them how to make a donut. But the angels who are in charge of teaching us when we're children are going to teach them the kinds of things that will enable them to make donuts. And they can see out there in the donut world that there's good stuff out there in the field. The distinction between the garden and the field is two kind of animals. Okay, God brought the birds and the beasts of the field to Adam to name, and Adam named the cattle and the birds and the beast. God didn't have to bring the cattle because they were already there. They live with man. They're animals that are outside. You got the garden and you got the field. You got the plants of the garden. You got the plants of the field. You're going to move out of the garden into the field. How do we know that? Because when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God sent them out into the field. Here it says, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. This is all true. And now, lest he stretch out his hand and eat to the tree of life and live forever, which is complicated, therefore Yahweh God sent him out of the garden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. And there's a verse missing in your Bible. And Adam said, oh, please, I don't want to go out there. I've changed my mind. So verse 24, so he drove the man out. Before he drove him out, he sent him out. Okay, go on out. I'm not ready. Too bad. You, you wanted to go out, now you're going out. Okay. We have to move from that. We have to move from milk to meat. Nobody eats meat till Noah, at least officially. We move from milk to meat, as Paul, or somebody says in Hebrews. We move from priest to king to prophet. We move from being under law and obeying the rules in an existing world, like we're children. These are the rules. Keep them. But why? Don't ask why. Because I say so. That's why. Okay? That's the priestly rules. And then we mature to being kings, and that's ruling and manipulating an existing world. And then we move to being prophets, where by wisdom we make a new world. Now, there's a lot of stuff on that out there on the book tables too. But in the Bible, that's the progression. And you'll, you'll hear this again. You'll hear this uh, 
all week long in various ways. But look at the priestly part of the Bible. Look at Leviticus. The, pre- the priests were never given any discretion on anything. Everything's written out for them. If a man comes to you with a white spot on his arm, this is exactly how you analyze the white spot on his arm. Does it have yellow hairs in it? Have him come back in a week. Has it gotten bigger? If it hasn't gotten any bigger, have him come back in another week. If it's gone down, it's not leprosy. If it started to go back, you know, all it's all laid out. Man, real concern with white spots on the arm. Everything else, all the details. If you're a priest, you never have to make any decisions except to just do what you're told. When you get to being a king, it's different. Remember, you bring out two prostitutes. They both claim the same baby. How do you deal with that? It's not written in the law. You have to have wisdom to deal with something like that. That's the first thing Solomon does. And Solomon prays to God for knowledge of good and evil. And God says, you pray for knowledge of good and evil, and I'll give it to you. I'll give you wisdom. Knowledge of good and evil means wisdom. That's what kings have. But Solomon didn't set this world up. It's prophets who set up a new world. Moses sets up a new world. Samuel sets up a new world. Ezekiel sets up a new world. Jesus sets up a new world. That's the prophetic function. It's the highest function. It's what older, elder men who have an experience with all of life and have seen everything and now are in a position to say exactly what needs to be said to destroy the old world and exactly what vision to give to cause people to want to act in a new way into the new world. That's what prophets do. If you're a prophet, you can do that. But you need to be an old guy. Young prophets can't do that. Daniel was a prophet when he was 20 years old, but he didn't know what to make out of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. God told him what to make out of it. Then he went back and reported it to Nebuchadnezzar. But when Daniel was 90 years old, and he saw the handwriting on the wall at Belshazzar's feast, he knew exactly what it meant. He didn't have to pray and say, Lord, tell me what this means. He knew what it meant. Because he had 90 years of experience. He'd gone from being a young priest to a middle-aged ruler to an elder who could really see what needed to be done. All right, that's what Adam needs to do. He needs to grow up. And the Bible's full of this. Why is it saying Galatians? Galatians, Paul doesn't say uh, in Galatians, you were sinners and now you're forgiven. He says you were children and now you're grown-ups. When you were children, the angels were in charge. And the angels ruled you by animals and animal teachings. By saying, learn from animals. By saying, sacrifice animals. And they ruled you with stars. And you watched the stars to know what time to worship. But now, you're not children under, under angels anymore. You're grown up in the sun, and now you decide when to have the worship service. And you worship through, the, through a human being and not through animals anymore. You find anything in the Pauline epistles that says, okay, this is how you learn from animals, like Aesop's fables. No, Proverbs is full of that. But we move from learning from animals to being around people. We'll talk about this when we talk about the difference between land and city tomorrow. When you live on the land, you live with animals. It's hard to make animals do what you want. When you move in the city, you have to live with human beings. (laughs) And then you wish you were back out there with the animals. (laughs) It's hard to make animals do things, try to be a pastor of a church. 
<laughs> you move from bread to wine. Priests are never allowed to drink wine when they're on the job, but kings are shown sitting on their throne. Sitting priests never sit. Kings sit on their throne in rest. The victory's won. So Ahasuerus has a great feast because the victory's won. He's built his palace. It's time to relax and have a feast. The crowds say, Vashti, Vashti. So Ahasuerus says, have Vashti come and bring her crown and let's stand out and greet the crowds. And she won't do it. That's a big problem, right? Everybody knows Vashti wouldn't come. So he has to do something about it. There the story starts. Well, from bread to wine, from priest to king. In the old time, every evening and every morning, the priest would stand before God in the before the temple doors. And he would take bread. And he would say, this is Yahweh's memorial. And he would divide the bread. And you know, some of it would put in, be put inside the altar for the Lord to eat. And the priest would eat the rest of it. And that was called a memorial because it would call on God. It was called a memorial because it would call on God to remember. It's to remind God and he would remember and come and see and act. All right? And that was it. And the salt of the covenant was always included in this bread. And so the covenant was renewed actually every evening and every morning as they broke this bread and had a memorial for God. Then Jesus came and on the night in which he was betrayed, he takes bread and he breaks it and he calls it a memorial. Must have shocked those disciples. Jesus is doing what a priest does. And he eats a bite of it. Ooh, first bite. Just like the Lord. Then he shares it with those men. They're the new priests. He says this is a memorial. Then the priests over in the temple, while this is going on, they take a jar of wine and they pour it out at the base of the altar because the kingdom hasn't come yet. And so they eat the bread, but they dump the wine out. Jesus, after they finished eating, takes wine and says, this is a memorial and this is the covenant. The covenant's not in the bread anymore. The covenant is in the wine. Now you see, there's a new covenant. There was a bread covenant, now there's a wine covenant. There was a priest covenant, now there's a king covenant. This wine is the covenant now. And he drinks some and he serves it to them. That means the kingdom has come. That's very radical. See? And every time a Jew went into a Christian church and he saw him drinking wine and breaking memorial bread, <laughs> Josiah put people to death for doing that stuff on high places. Didn't he? Not allowed to break bread anywhere but the temple. This was the great sin of the high, high placers, that they had memorial bread someplace other than the temple. Saul of Tarsus goes into the Christian church and he sees them having memorial bread. And now even worse, they're having wine, claiming that their little churches are little temples. He decides to do what Josiah did. Josiah, the greatest king of Israel. Saul. Mr. Josiah, too. Pretty radical, see? The church was doing something so scandalous. Plus, they were singing with musical instruments. Sing and play music, it says. That only went on at the temple. Pretty scandalous stuff. Well, you move from bread to wine. You move from priest to king. Adam, 
Doesn't have any wine there in the garden. There are no grapes. Fruit trees aren't grapes. Grapes are vines. Okay, the grapes are the plants of the field. You don't really get wine till Noah, and Noah is the first guy that's a king, and Noah gets to drink wine, and Noah is given the right to exercise capital punishment. That's the first real king. Exercising capital punishment is a sign of a king. We went over this last year at our conference on wisdom in Ecclesiastes. But let me remind you that when David is dying, David says to Solomon, you are a wise man and you will be able to figure out the perfect way to kill Joab and to kill Shemai and make sure their gray, gray hairs don't come down uh, to the grave in peace. Their gray hairs, whatever he says. All right, you'll know how to kill him. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the skill to kill people. That's basically what he says. You'll be able to do it just right. You'll get Joab so excited he'll go and grab hold of the horns of the altar, and that's such a blasphemous thing you'll be able to put him to death. Maybe. Whatever. All right? You'll be able to figure it out. And then the first thing that Solomon does after he becomes king and he prays for wisdom and he gets it, he's got these two harlots out there and the baby. He says, bring the baby, bring a sword out and chop the baby in half. Wisdom (laughs) involves killing people, at least in the kingly sense. Noah is given the right to exercise capital punishment. That makes him a king. I know this is shocking, but it's just what the Bible says. And he plants a vineyard and has wine. See, from bread to wine, from Adam to Noah... There's a progression here. It's a change. Glorification. A new covenant arrangement. That's supposed to happen to human beings, apart from sin. That's what this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is about. It puts you out in that world. It gives you the right to handle things. So I'm going to close this with some observations here on page 2. When I say close, don't get your hopes up. Okay. The first is that the progression from sleep, deep sleep, death, to awakening, resurrection, glorification is not something that results from man's fall into sin, but is the warp and woof of creation. That's how God does things. It's how the world is. In a sense, it happens every day in our lives. It happens in big ways in cultures. It happens in big covenant changes in the Bible. But... It's the way things are, okay? Not not a result of sin, okay? You'd have gotten glorious white hair on your head eventually anyway, except you would have been around a 1,000 years old, probably, okay? That's the way it is, okay? This second observation is this must be grounded in the internal life of the Trinity. I don't have to say how. Everything that exists in the creation is a reflection of something in the Trinity, There's nothing outside of God that God could use as a template for anything in His creation. So no matter what it is that's in this world, whether it's blue eyes or brown hair, is modeled on something in God, somehow or other. And I I would suggest that in the Trinity, there is a way in which each person delights to step back to glorify the other two. And you know what happens here is, If let's do this, if the sun steps back and gives his attribute of language, let us say, to the Father and the Spirit, what does he receive back? 
He receives back, let us say, the attribute of personality from the Father. And he receives back, let us say, the attribute of life from the Spirit. That is, the Son gives up one thing, gives it up, and receives double back. What happens in the book of Job? Job goes through death and at the end, double back. Okay. The parable of the talents. The man who has five talents, at the end he has ten. The man with four, at the end he has two, he has two, at the end has four. The man with one talent comes back and says, here it is, the very same talent you gave me. Why? What does that mean? That means the guy with five talents must have given his up at some point. He must have put them out, and then he received back ten. They went out of his hand. The guy with two talents let those two talents out of his hand, and they came back four. And it's doubled. This doubling business has its root in the Trinity. And I think something like that is behind the death and resurrection. We can say that each person of the Trinity delights to die to his own things so that each other person can receive the glory. How that is, I'll never know because I won't be God. But I know that in this world it's copied. Okay. Now, number three. The fall of Satan, not the fall of man, the fall of Satan introduces the need for vindication as part of resurrection because Satan brings false charges against man. So Satan says to Jesus Christ, you can't do it. Okay? And when Jesus is resurrected, it's his vindication. It's his justification. But it's his vindication. Okay? And you and I have been justified in one sense already, but we're going to be justified again at the end of time because people make false charges against us all the time if we're faithful. And God is going to vindicate us on the last day. And all the people who have false charges against us are going to have their mouths stopped. They may be on God's side, but at least the things they said about us that were false, they'll have to apologize for, at least something. I don't know. I don't know how that works. But there'll be vindication, you see. People, the Satan's attacks on the church, there will be a final justification, a final vindication. And so vindication is part of resurrection. And false charges are an aspect of death. It's another kind of death. See? If you've been behaving yourself and all of a sudden they bring a bunch of false charges against you and you lose your job and your wife is upset at you, they accuse you of adultery. And your wife is all of a sudden, she's not quite sure. And your marriage is all messed up. And you lose your job and people in the church are looking sideways at you and maybe they bring you to the elders and you get excommunicated and it's all a false charge. Well, that's death. <laughs> and resurrection is vindication. Doesn't have anything to do with sin. If Adam hadn't sinned, there would still have been false charges from Satan, and there would still have been vindication. And it also, the fall of Satan, introduces punishment of the enemy as an aspect of death. So there are enemies, angelic enemies, and there will be a death for them. And that's another kind of death, but it's an aspect. It's part of this going back down into darkness, only it's way down into darkness. But then we have a third thing that happens, the fall of Adam. You know, Satan comes to Eve, and he starts talking to her, and we know that Adam is standing there the whole time. And Satan is actually starts off doing what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to educate the human race. 
And so he asked them some probing questions to Eve. Was it God who said these things? Do you hear God say that we're, we're supposed not to eat of that tree? Well, she says, my husband told me, Adam told me, and I, I believe him. My pastor told me, and I believe him. Well, all right. Any other things? Well, she says, we figure if you don't eat it, you ought not to touch it. Was she right? Of course she was right. Read Leviticus 11. What you don't eat, you don't touch. Touch not, taste not, handle not. They go together. She's been meditating on the Word. She's starting to see its implications. She's adding to the Scriptures, but in a good sense. She's beginning to have wisdom. Wisdom is the adding to the law of new implications. Then, of course, Satan challenges them. He says, you will not die. God has lied to you. God has bad intentions for you. And, of course, that's when Adam should have stepped in and said, hey, do what Jesus did at the Garden of Gethsemane. Step in between those Roman soldiers and the men and protect them and say, no, sir. Uh, But he didn't, of course, because he wanted her to eat it so he could see what would happen. That's the fall of Adam. The fall of Adam introduces, but that didn't have to happen. Satan had fallen. Adam could have continued to fight the holy war against Satan, but he didn't. Instead, he changed sides. The fall of Adam introduces the need for redemption and forgiveness as part of resurrection. See? It introduces punishment and cleansing as an aspect of death. Because we are sinners, death now takes on the additional benefit of destroying sin. And there is in the law a spectrum between the sin or purification offering over here on one end and sprinkling yourself with a little bit of water for uncleanness on the other. Those are all the same thing depending on the degree of death that you have encountered. If you become very slightly dead, the word unclean means dead. If you become very slightly dead, then you are cleansed and resurrected. That death purges you. Okay? So death... Another aspect of death is it can cleanse and purge us so that in our resurrection we no longer have a death body. Who will deliver us from this body of death? Who will deliver us from this death nature? You don't really have a sin nature. You have a death nature. And it's out of your death nature that your sins come. Okay? It's out of our death. Paul describes us in Romans. He says, you're like a a grave that has a stinking corpse down inside of it, okay? And this bad breath that comes out of you, okay? It's your mouth is an open grave. That's bad breath, okay? Because you're dead inside. And out of that death inside of you come all the sins. But now, resurrection gets rid of that too. So resurrection glorifies us, resurrection vindicates us, resurrection cleanses and purges us. Might be better ways to say these things, but it does all three of these things. But resurrection doesn't come about because of sin. It comes about because it was part of glorification to start with. You following me here? Let's talk about this a slightly different way. Number five, the Word of God comes to man, first of all, for maturation and glorification. Second of all, to train us for holy war. And third, to announce the way of redemption and forgiveness, in which we are passive. All right? God forgives us. God saves us. But look at how much of the Bible is not concerned directly with that. It's concerned with holy war. Look at the Gospels. Jesus came to save us from sin. Well, how come Jesus spends so much time beating up demons? First thing he does in Mark, out of the box. 
beats up demons. That's not saving me from my sin. That's delivering me from those who bring false charges, from those who want to corrupt. That's holy war. And a huge amount of the Bible is concerned with holy war. And then a whole lot of the Bible is concerned with showing us how to grow up, like Proverbs, like stuff in Genesis. Stories in Genesis are very badly misunderstood by many in our traditions because they're read as moralistic tales about people who do wrong things and then people who do right things. Those stories are about maturation through death and resurrection. God tells Abram, you're going to have a son. I want you to call yourself Big Daddy, Abram, even though you don't have one. That's kind of embarrassing. But it makes, you know, having that name is going to make you think about having a son all the time. He finally gets one son. God says, I want you to change your name to Maximum Dad. Abraham. Okay? That's even more humiliating. God puts Abraham's mind on this son business all the time. Finally, he has a son. And God says, I want you to send him away. Oh, but Ishmael, let him live before you. He'll live, but he's not going to live with you. I'll be with him. You send him away. Then he tells him to kill Isaac. That's death, okay? That changes Abraham, okay? Then with Jacob, he makes Jacob think about the inheritance all the time. And when Jacob finally gets an inheritance, God says, I want you to give it all to Esau. Send it all across the river. Give it to Esau. You willing to do that? (laughs) That's death. Then Esau gives it all back and says, I don't want it. I've had a change of heart over the last 20 years, brother. With Joseph, he gives Joseph dreams about how Joseph is going to be in charge of all kinds of stuff. And he puts Joseph in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar was the captain of the king's bodyguard. Joseph was about the number three man in Egypt. I mean, who's closer to the Pharaoh than the captain of the Praetorian Guard? Nobody. And it says Potiphar was out golfing all day long, and Joseph ran his whole affairs. And Joseph has to give it all up and go to prison, go to death, and then be raised up in an even higher situation. That's what Genesis is about. It's about fathers and sons, about all kinds of other things, but it's about maturation, learning. Each of these men is able to take over a much wider dominion. Abram doesn't have vast flocks like Jacob has. Jacob can't handle ruling in Egypt like Joseph can. It's a generation thing. Glorification. And apart from sin, God wants to do that. And Genesis is all about that. It's not just about people who commit sins and get forgiven. It's also about holy war. How do you deal with Philistines when they keep stopping up your wells? Okay, how do you deal with that? And then the Word of God comes to announce the way of redemption and forgiveness. Of course it does that too. And sometimes in the order of experience, we get forgiven first, and then we learn about maturation and holy war. But if man hadn't sinned, there still would have been a Bible. There still would have been angels educating Adam and Eve. There would still have been stuff written down, and there would still be a Bible, and there would still have been an incarnation of the Son of God, because the whole purpose of the creation was to have a bride for the second person of the Trinity. And that's not a new idea. Okay? Jesus, you know, people, you have this notion that isn't it wonderful that Adam fell into sin because if he hadn't sinned, Jesus would never have come to be the husband of the church. Do you really want to go down that path? It's called the Felicitous Fall Doctrine. No, you don't want to do that. 
Some theologians have said, it's just a mystery, man. But I think we can do better than that. I think we can just say, no. At the climax of some phase of history, there would have been an incarnation, and Jesus would have been the son of Adam, and bring creation to a certain fullness. And uh, that's what the purpose was all along. Otherwise, you tend to wind up with the fall was a good thing, and that's not acceptable. Well, now, two last points here on new covenants. You, are you getting the drift of this lecture? The new covenants are kind of going on all the time. You've got a covenantal arrangement, and then it gets transformed into something new. That's the, that's the basis of what's going on in history. In general, a new covenant is whatever arrangement has just come in or is just about to come to replace the previous arrangement. This phenomenon exists at many levels, from daily life to marriage. You enter into marriage to cultural trends. What happens when you have the Internet? Makes for a new covenant. Makes for a new order of things. To periods of divine revelation. To national conquests. The British Empire. And then the collapse of the British Empire. New covenants, new arrangements. This is These things are going on all the time. Sometimes they're glorifications, sometimes they're degradations, but they're always changes. They're always new arrangements. That's life. And in specific, then number seven, of course this is number seven. I don't know if this just worked out this way. I just don't understand it. Number seven. The new covenant is the covenant in the second Adam, the incarnate Son of God, whose incarnation to be the husband of creation through humanity was the purpose of creation in the first place. I will stand on that. You don't have to agree. Hence, there was always to be a preliminary covenant in the first Adam and a final covenant in the second Adam. That was the goal all along, to have there be a preliminary covenant with Adam and the human race, and then at some point to be a final covenant in a second Adam when the Son of God comes into the world and brings it to its fullness. That was always the plan. Sin or no sin. And that's the end of my remarks in this first lecture. Any comments or questions? Anybody want to rebuke me? Yes, sir. You said Yeah, the question is, uh, kings receded. Um, a lot of things could be said about that. The blasphemy of the man of sin to take his seat in the temple since the the, uh, the uh, man of sin is actually the high priest. Uh, uh, what does it mean then for the Son of God to stand? Uh, son of God means king, most fundamentally. Just as son of man means priest, most fundamentally. And what does it mean for the Son of God to stand when Stephen, Stephen, Stephen sees him standing? I don't know. Anybody want to answer that? The book of Acts, the least studied book in the Bible from a redemptive historical standpoint. Some people have said Jesus stands up to receive him in, but it seems to me there's more than that. And if a king is standing up, I would say a king is getting ready to fight. And uh, see, 
My understanding of the behind the scenes in New Testament history is that the, the, the attack on Stephen is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is in the church. It's an attack on the bride. Jesus forgives everybody for attacking him, but you don't forgive people for attacking your wife. And when they murder Stephen, I think that the stars started to fall. And I think that was it. And I think Jesus got up off his throne and he was about ready to wipe them all out. And Stephen said, pray for them. And then we get 40 years to the destruction of Jerusalem. So this is an 80-30 event. So that's actually how I see it. Now, I won't know till I get to heaven if that guess is right. But see, I, I think if I'm going to make a guess, it would be Jesus is getting up to wipe them all out. <laughs> and Stephen's prayer postpones that for 40 years. So he acting in a sense on the behalf of the Holy Spirit at that point? Jesus is at that point is acting on his behalf. Jesus is acting on whose behalf? The Holy Spirit's behalf. Well, I think... He's vindicating Stephen. Yes, he's vindicating Stephen, and he's vindicating the Spirit. Yeah, right. The question is, is he acting on behalf of the Holy Spirit? Well, yeah, blasphemy against the Spirit is that you have a testimony of two witnesses. So Jesus has made his witness, and then after Acts 2, the Spirit makes his witness. If you reject both witnesses, you're toast. So, yeah, I think that's right. Good. Well, now, that concludes this. Tonight, if you're game, we have Vespers at 7 o'clock, and we've changed back to the way we used to do things. Uh, we won't try to have a sermon and then have a conclusion of a service afterwards. Uh, rather, just uh, have Vespers conclude that and then have our evening lecture so we can have questions and answers. The, the idea of having sermons at night was sermons were kind of turning into lectures anyway. and <laughs> Part of the, the goal was to hope that a lot of people in the local churches here might come out at night. and That didn't happen, so I think we don't need to worry about that anymore. So at 7 is Vespers. And um, we'll spend a little bit of time learning a new song for part of the liturgy. And then uh, my second... Uh, lecture will be on the beginnings of what the Bible calls a new covenant, which will be the remnant and restoration period, what Jeremiah talks about, uh, the initial coming of the new covenant after the exile, and why that's important. And then the then we'll, we'll proceed from that, then tomorrow morning um, I will be talking about the shift from land to city, just some cultural implications of uh, and theological implications of the uh, of the change, and then my last lecture will be a, a kind of a quick overview of the Book of Acts to show how it's put together. And the, there's two phases of the New Covenant there: Jew, Jewish phase and then an Oikumene phase. So we have to kind of learn all that and then see what the Peter section of Paul of Acts does, and then what the Pauline section of Acts does. So that's where I'll be going. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis, and on Facebook if you just search for our name. 
If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.